Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Pete Davis. Pete is a consultant in emergency and retrieval medicine based out of the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow. Since qualifying as a doctor, Pete has worked with the Defence Medical Services as an army consultant, and that's taken him all over the world in a variety of operational tours and training exercises. Pete also works for the Scott Star Retrieval Service, and therefore tours all over Scotland, popping up to deal with primary and secondary retrievals from across the country. Now, Pete is here to talk to us today about damage control resuscitation. Pete, thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us. Thanks very much for inviting me, Dave. So, probably the first thing to do is to try and pin down some definitions. What exactly do you mean by damage control resuscitation? Damage control resuscitation is a systematic approach to resuscitation which involves containing or stopping ongoing major hemorrhage and then performing hemostatic resuscitation with blood and blood products in order to optimise oxygenation and tissue perfusion. Okay, so that gives us a really good textbook definition. But I guess the challenge really is going to be trying to provide that level of care away from the hospital and away from the emergency department at the roadside or in somewhere remote and rural? The paradigm of damage control resuscitation really starts in the pre-hospital phase and continues through the differentiation of the multiply injured patient in the emergency room um, through then on to the intensive care unit or the operating room if either damage control surgery or a definitive surgical procedure is required and then back to the intensive care unit afterwards for ongoing correction of the patient's metabolic derangement and deranged physiology. So taking the principles of damage control resuscitation into the field as far forward as possible has been a a challenge and a goal, not only in recent conflict in the military setting, but also in the civil setting. And am I right in saying that originally the concept of damage control was a naval concept? Yes, so damage control was originally naval terminology that was coined in World War II and was really about the capacity of a ship to be able to absorb damage but maintain mission integrity. In other words, to continue to fight on or to fight and withdraw so that it could return to its home base or a dry dock, for instance, to undergo definitive repair. So, for instance, if a ship was old, perhaps just below the waterline by a torpedo, or it received multiple hits from from shells to its superstructure above the waterline, then in order to prevent the ship from sinking, the so-called damage control parties on board the ship would use things like mattresses and wooden beams and wedges and all sorts of materials in order to effect temporary running repairs in order to keep the ship afloat and for it to be able to fight on. So, for instance, you know, you can consider the rudder, the steering apparatus of a ship to be a, a vital function of a ship, a vital organ of a ship, if you like, 
And so damage control parties would have innovative ways of being able to construct temporary steering systems for a ship if its rudder and its steering controls were damaged during conflict. And this then would enable the damaged ship to continue to stay afloat and return to its port were definitive repairs, i.e. the reconstruction of a new rudder and steering system or properly placing holes above or below the waterline could be achieved. The analogy crosses over to resuscitation of the very seriously injured individual, i.e. somebody who's really on the cusp of life. The term damage control or damage control surgery originally was first coined back in 1976 and then described by Schwab and others in the States in 1993. Initially, it was a very sort of a a surgery-centric concept, if you like, but as resuscitation has taken perhaps the pre-surgical resuscitation and in particular the pre-hospital resuscitation, as that's kind of achieved a greater prominence, being underpinned by greater scientific knowledge uh, since then, that the term damage control resuscitation has been coined to, to comprise the, the whole system of, um, of combining catastrophic hemorrhage control with an, an, an ABC approach and hemostatic resuscitation. And this approach may or may not include a surgical element to it. In other words, you can have a very, very badly injured patient who requires a damage control resuscitation approach and that individual may not actually require surgery as part of that complex resuscitation. That's really interesting. I know from the surgical side, there's quite a, a mindset shift involved in damage control surgery away from what we would do routinely in elective practice or even in urgent cases. We're so used to trying to make the definitive intervention and it's a real jump to accepting the concept of patching somebody up with a view to getting them into a place of safety, probably the intensive care unit, with a view to bringing them back away down the line when their physiology has had a chance to stabilise. Yeah, completely, Dave. And I think the way to, to understand it is to accept that the deranged physiology, the metabolic insult to the patient, trumps the requirement for surgery. So that means that you've only got a limited time in which you can subject somebody who has very, very limited physiological reserves to a surgical procedure. And I'm sure, you know, you would agree that generally the damage control surgical procedure is is time limited to around 45 minutes. So it can't be in 45 minutes a definitive procedure. You can't do a complex bowel reconstruction or a complex vascular anastomosis or, for instance, put an intermediary nail in a, in a fractured femur um, in a 45-minute operation. But the imperative has to be to do what's required in order to minimise ongoing hemorrhage and to minimise contamination of the cavity and then get the patient from the operating room back to the intensive care unit where ongoing correction of deranged physiology can be achieved. And there's a pretty noticeable difference when that physiology has been corrected, certainly noticeable on the surgical side, appreciate we're stepping away from the pre-hospital world for a second, but once that patient has been in ICU for, say, 24 hours, they've had their physiology normalised, the clever doctors have made some, some clever interventions and, and allowed the patient to, I guess, sort of settle out, what you have at that relook opportunity is a patient who's 
much more physiologically stable, they're much more able to tolerate a better operation, and they've had that chance to play catch-up, I guess, which means that any interventions that you do have got a much better chance of success. So if we accept that the, you know, the multiply injured patient, patient with complex polytrauma, for instance, they're probably in that lethal triad state where they're hypothermic, acidemic, and already coagulopathic. And somebody with those features is, as we said, you know, on the cusp of life and already has a significant metabolic and physiologic uh, derangement. And somebody in that situation will not stand a four-hour complex surgical procedure. And I guess that does have parallels in the pre-hospital world as well. There is that imperative to, to get patients out of entrapments, off the road, out of the weather and into a warm, stable environment in order to adequately resuscitate them rather than trying to do things when we're fighting against the elements, we're fighting against suboptimal conditions. Exactly. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, we've dived a little bit into the history there. It does seem that the evolution of that pre-hospital medicine has taken some pretty interesting turns along the way. At various points during the last 50 or 100 years, we've gone through phases of different aspects of care. So for instance, using the two litres of crystalline fluid infused rapidly for all trauma patients, which might not always have been particularly effective. I wonder how you see that journey from where we were 100 years ago to where we are today. Well, I think, and you might expect this from me and from you for that matter, with us both being military men, I think there are still very important lessons and observations to be learned or gained from looking at practice during World War II. So again, the concept of emergency medicine, for instance, was something that didn't exist during World War II. Emergency medicine really had its infancy, as you stated earlier, during the Vietnam conflict. But the equivalent of the resuscitation room, really, I think, if you were in a field surgical facility in, say, northwest Europe after the invasion of Europe in 44, or in Arnhem in 44, or even in prior to that in the Western Desert, the early equivalent of the resuscitation room was transfusion. So if you survived on the battlefield and you were able to be evacuated to a dressing station as what we now accept to be a, in military parlance a role two facility, if you like, if, if you were lucky enough to be evacuated to a dressing station, awaiting surgery, and you were shocked, and that really was the lay expression or used to term somebody in what we've now termed to be in, in hemorrhagic shock, and then you were transfused, and you were transfused whole blood. You were transfused empirically. There were no sort of point-of-care testing facilities available or complex laboratory assays, the sort of things that would hematology or blood transfusion would perform for us in a hospital today. But you were transfused whole blood, and if that improved your physiology and improved your shocked status, you then went onto the operating table and the surgeons did what they could do in terms of extremity surgery or cavity surgery, which aimed to arrest hemorrhage and, and perhaps perform definitive procedure. And then you undoubtedly would lose more blood during that operative procedure. And so if you survived the operation, you'd go back to transfusion, where you'd be transfused more whole blood. And then hopefully, if you survived that, you'd go to the ward, where you'd start your convalescence and be evacuated. There was no emergency room resuscitation. And critically, neither was there any intensive care, post-operative care, the sort of thing that we would take for granted today. 
So that's a little bit of the history of resuscitation in World War II. So as well as transfusion, another product was used even further forward from a dressing station, and this was freeze-dried plasma. And both the French and the US forces had access to freeze-dried plasma. And there are famous photographs, for instance, I can think of one of a, an injured American soldier on Omaha Beach being attended by a medic with an upturned rifle in the sand and a bottle of plasma hanging from the butt of the rifle and a line going in via an IV cannula to treat the individual. So they weren't being transfused blood or whole blood but they were receiving freeze-dried plasma, which had been reconstituted at a very far forward location, in other words, as near to the point of wounding as possible. And of course, that has clear crossover to today's practice, where not only are we delivering packed red cells, but also plasma, not fresh frozen plasma, which would be available in the hospital, but lyophilized or or freeze-dried plasma in the pre-hospital setting. It's amazing that the wheel has pretty much turned full circle. Now, looking again at trying to get whole blood into that far forward environment, and I guess, like with most things in fashion, we're kind of coming back to something that we discarded years ago. You're absolutely right, Dave. If you look at the various fluids which have been advocated for use in resuscitation, both pre-hospital and in the emergency room, in the resuscitation room, In the intervening years, there's been a battle royale between advocates for colloid resuscitation and advocates for crystalloid resuscitation. Colloids being, for example, gel fusin and hemoxel, which we no longer use at all now, or crystalloids such as Hartman's solution or normal saline. And although the evidence and agreement seem to sort of come down on the side of using crystalloid, both pre-hospital and in-hospital, The key thing is that neither of these liquids, fluids, are able to transport oxygen, which is the prime function of blood, whether it's just the packed red cells or whole blood. And that's really what's required of injured tissue in major trauma. So, yeah, we've gladly now, I think, moved on in resuscitation from the use of crystalloids. And we're back to the preference being to transfuse blood and blood products, both in the pre-hospital phase and also in the resuscitation room phase before the individual patient moves on either to surgery or to intensive care. I want to come back to blood later on when we talk more about the red teams in Scotland. You mentioned right back at the start this concept of hypotensive resuscitation. Can I get you to expand on that? So... Allied to the concept of hemostatic resuscitation is also the concept of so-called permissive hypotension. In other words, whether you're infusing crystalloid or transfusing blood and blood products in certain kinds of trauma, and this really is penetrating, penetrating vascular injury, such as gunshot wound or shrapnel wound or knife wound, moreover in the civil setting, What you're not trying to do, what you're trying to avoid, if you like, is normalizing the blood pressure because the risk is sort of described colloquially as popping the clot. In other words, the the body's own defense mechanism has been desperately trying to stem ongoing hemorrhage following the insult from the gunshot wound or the knife wound or the shrapnel wound or whatever. And 
in order to to form this clot and temporarily stem the ongoing hemorrhage, that's done more recently if blood pressure isn't particularly high. But then, of course, there's a trade-off between blood pressure being just high enough to make sure that the brain and vital organs are perfused with oxygen-carrying blood, in other words, to get the amount of oxygen they need, and that that pressure equally is not so high as to prevent the effective formation of clot. And the analogy is with a, a central heating system at home where if you spring a leak somewhere and you continue to try and run that system at a relatively high pressure, then the leak will just persist and may even become larger. So one thing to do if your central heating system springs a leak is to switch the pump off. Um, so at least you may decrease the pressure in the system and give you a chance to actually patch up the hole and stop ongoing leak from it. That's brilliant. And it nicely demonstrates what we're sort of aiming for. We talked a bit there about perfusion, and, and that seems to be the, the critical marker of when to intervene, whether that be a, an absolute blood pressure or a clinical assessment of organ derangement, which I guess most of the time in the pre-hospital setting is going to be a sort of perception that the patient is newly confused or has got a, a dropping GCS. Agreed. And that's exactly right. That In the field, it's not just the, the measurement from the non-invasive blood pressure cuff that's on the patient. And let's be realistic, we're not going to have the opportunity, nor is it appropriate to insert invasive arterial monitoring, usually in the field. Um, so we've got the non-invasive blood pressure reading on our monitor, and we've also got the, the Mark 1 eyeball looking at the patient and making an assessment as to the degree of perfusion of the brain simply by whether the patient is alert or not. And in general terms, you know, with life-threatening penetrating injury, we probably don't want to increase the systolic blood pressure much above 90 millimetres of mercury. And actually, the real imperative is moving that patient as rapidly as possible to a medical facility where, um, where the appropriate surgical intervention can be performed to arrest the ongoing hemorrhage and provide ultimately the definitive repair. As we move forward in Scotland, that is going to be to a nominated major trauma centre. Of course, the major trauma centres, that network already exists across England and Wales. Now, one of the things that has changed hugely over the last few years is this concept of trying to bring blood back into the pre-hospital sphere which seems to have been linked up with and involved with the evolution of concepts like the red team a physician-led team that's attempting to take an emergency room or parts thereof back to the patient at the roadside that's pretty much taken us full circle again and this concept of the roadside anesthetic or FAIR the sort of pre-hospital emergency anesthesia or RSI rapid sequence induction and these concepts have changed the game again in terms of both how and really where we're resuscitating patients. Yeah, and I think we need to look at how pre-hospital care has evolved perhaps over the past 30 years or so. So as far as the UK goes, there have been enthusiastic physicians involved largely through the forefathers of the basics programme across the UK. And working in conjunction, you know, usually as enthusiastic volunteers with ambulance service personnel. These doctors were able to provide, for instance, intravenous analgesia, um, support the ambulance service personnel in making judgment calls as to how quickly somebody required extrication from a crashed vehicle and onward transfer to hospital. But the, the more sort of complex or invasive or high-risk procedures 
such as pre-hospital anesthesia, weren't really available in the early days, if you like. So then as things have became more organised, we had the first helicopter emergency medical service set up at the, at the Royal London Hospital. And again, in the beginning, the focus was very much a surgery-centric focus or approach to the multiply injured patients in the Greater London area. And indeed, the first HEMS doctors were actually surgeons in training or surgeons on, on fellowship. So if we then, as that service started to build a database, a database of success, so the emphasis started to shift more towards critical care. So as the years went by through the 90s and into the 21st century, into the noughties, the type of doctor employed by first the London HEM service and then the other HEMS services across the UK and the other pre-hospital care services, the doctors have become ones who have critical care training. So sure, some of them have still been surgeons, but the surgeons have also served their time um, in intensive care medicine or in emergency medicine. And typically, your red team, your pre-hospital critical care team, your HEMS team today, will be crewed by a doctor who's a trainee or on fellowship from either an emergency medicine or an anesthesia or an intensive care medicine background. So what this enabled red teams, pre-hospital critical care teams to, to start to deliver from the late 90s and into the noughties was safe pre-hospital general anesthesia, field anesthesia, if you like. Traditionally, it been the, you know, the preserver, the anaesthetist working in the anaesthetic room adjacent to an operating room or delivering general anesthesia in the emergency room. But that was a significant step forward. So I guess the last bit of the story that we've not yet looked at is the last maybe decade of conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and the evolutions that took place during the latter part of, of those conflicts. So once it became accepted practice to deliver general anaesthesia in the field, in the pre-hospital setting, that meant that patients would often be rather better prepared for onwards management in the hospital, in the receiving hospital, than they would have been because they were anaesthetised, they could go straight to the CT scanner perhaps, or even straight to the operating room, or even in extremis, undergo a resuscitative surgical procedure in the emergency department. But really, the anaesthetic was often being given uh, for attended patients in the context of major trauma. So we can imagine a motorcyclist who's been thrown from a motorcycle in a crash and has collided with the building and has suffered perhaps uh, a closed head injury, a thoracic injury with multiple rib fractures, plus injury to the underlying lung, plus or minus a hemoneumothorax, may well have suffered intra-abdominal injury and extremity injury. So for instance, a an open femoral fracture or an open tib and fib fracture. In attending this kind of complex polytrauma in the field, sure, we can deliver analgesia, intravenous analgesia. We could also splint extremities and control hemorrhage to an extent by splinting extremities. We could apply a tourniquet, and tourniquets very much um, came back into fashion again during uh, conflict years of Iraq and Afghanistan, as you say. And we could deliver general anesthesia. But the real benefit for delivering general anaesthesia without hemostatic resuscitation was really for those patients with a traumatic brain injury. So you take over that vital function, which may have been deranged in the injury. You take that function over 
and you provide optimization and help to optimize oxygenation of blood going to the brain. Controlled ventilation has a beneficial effect through the autoregulation process on cerebral vascular flow. So for the traumatic brain injured patient, general anesthesia in the field was a real plus. For many of the other patients, the multiply injured patients, the real benefit of them receiving an anesthetic in the field without hemostatic resuscitation was in preparing them for rapid transit once they arrived in the receiving hospital. And then things took a turn after several years of of conflict in Afghanistan. So we took the HEMS concept, the Helicopter Emergency Medical Service concept, and put a military slant on it in 2006 with the concept that became known as MERT, or Medical Emergency Response Team. And this essentially was a flying resuscitation room in the back of a CH-47 Chinook helicopter. So we could deliver general anesthesia. We could deliver a certain number of drugs, intravenous opiates, of course, for pain relief. We could splint extremities. We could put a pelvic binder on. We could use tourniquets because, of course, many of uh, the combat victims had complex extremity injury, whether through blast or through gunshot or shrapnel or whatever. So we were trying to arrest and control ongoing catastrophic hemorrhage. And sure, for the patient that was obtunded, in other words, the GCS was lowered, we could manage them with general anesthesia. But we still, for several years, didn't have the ability to fully resuscitate these victims during their transit from point of wounding to the receiving hospital at Camp Bastion in Helmand in Afghanistan. And it wasn't until really after 2008 that we were able to start to deliver blood and blood products during that transit from point of wounding to receiving medical facility. And what enabled the piece of kit, if you like, the sort of the breakthrough there was the the so-called golden hour box, which is a small box capable of holding four units of blood or four units of plasma. And it consists of, of specially constructed ceramic plates, which are prepared in a freezer for many hours and they're then capable of retaining that cold temperature for periods in excess of 36 hours. So that really revolutionized our ability to carry blood and blood products at a safe temperature, generally four degrees Celsius, without the blood being deranged by the extremes of temperature operating in in that desert conflict scenario. So typically daytime temperatures could rise to as much as 45 degrees Celsius or even higher. And yet we were still able to give blood, which had been stored at four degrees. Now, of course, there's a thermodilution effect, an adverse effect on the patient of giving a shocked patient who's already probably hypothermic, acidemic and coagulopathic. If we give them cold blood, we're going to make that worse. That's that lethal triad and we're just going to exacerbate that. Um, So actually, concurrent with being able to transport the blood in the golden hour box, we also obtained a clever piece of equipment which was capable of warming that blood to as near physiologic temperature, i.e. 36.5 degrees Celsius, to as near physiologic temperature as possible while it was being administered during that pre-hospital phase. As you say, an absolute game changer and and that's the technology that we're still seeing in terms of the golden hour boxes or adaptions thereof on the hills and on the roadside in Scotland. Yeah, so from that point onwards, Dave, when we were able to combine hemorrhage control techniques with general anaesthesia 
and transfusion of blood and blood products, we were truly able to deliver damage control resuscitation in the pre-hospital phase. So over the remaining years of the Afghan conflict up to 2014, when that conflict ceased, we were able to continue to refine and gather data. And those techniques and that practice was then retro-engineered, if you like, or, or reverse-engineered into the civil services. So the civil services in the UK began to adopt the same practices. And so truly, since then, since the HEM services and the other red teams that operate across the UK, since they've been able to deliver hemorrhage control, general anaesthesia, and transfusion of blood and blood products, they too have been able to deliver true damage control resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting. That's brilliant. It gives us a really nice rundown of, of how we are, where we are, and I guess kind of the science behind the evolutions that have taken us to this point. Now, at this point, I'm going to pause the chat with Pete, and we're going to come back next week to dig a little more into some of the concepts that we discussed earlier. Hope you can join us then. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.